Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. So if you take your Bibles, let's turn over to Hebrews uh, chapter 5, and we're going to continue our study in this, what I think is a very challenging book. I hope you felt that. Uh, Hebrews has some very strong things to say. And uh, sometimes uh, you might find yourself as you move through this letter feeling just a bit off balance because of the uh, strong statements that are made within this letter. And some of them are very sobering statements. And we've encountered already as we've moved through these first four chapters a recurring phrase that, that I don't know about you, but if if I were feeling a sense of struggle and maybe loss in my Christian life, uh, this particular phrase would be a bit frightening to me. And I, I want to address that today. And it's this phrase that is mentioned over and over, especially in chapters 3 and 4, where you have the Lord God saying, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. When that statement is made, suddenly... You, you, if you really think about it, you feel uh, the frailty of your own life, uh, some of the deceitfulness of your own heart, which has many times led you down particular paths of unrighteousness and disobedience, come crashing headlong into an unyielding God who has set commandments for life before us and asks us to choose. And when those two things clash headlong, when you read this particular phrase, you get the outcome in advance, and that is that man is the loser in this situation. And so you begin to have these feelings of fear because could I get to a place where God might say to me, Jane, Betty, Jim, Pete, you shall not enter my rest. That might be how you have felt at points as we've moved through these, these statements of God in these first four chapters. What makes them so sobering, as you've already uh, heard, is that these statements are not being made uh, to some heathen people. Uh, these statements are being made by God to His people. Believers. Those who were called by His name. Those uh, who have already placed uh, their faith in Jesus Christ, those who have been graced with both His presence and His power. It was His people to whom this address is being made. And if you remember last time when Bill Parkinson was moving us through chapter 4, we came across verse 2. Do you remember that? It said, For indeed we have heard good news preached to us, just as they, these other believers also, but the word they heard, and then these sobering words did not profit them because it was not united by faith to those who heard it. And suddenly Hebrews shouts out at us, you know, this could happen to you. You could miss the rest too. That's the scary side. Uh, now that we're four chapters in, I think it maybe is appropriate that I give a, a formal definition of rest. You might just jot this down because... We use it over and over again, and rest can be defined a number of ways, uh, but I thought about a way that maybe you could 
remember it in a formal statement. And, and so I've given a formal statement to it to help you. And it's this, when we talk about not entering the rest or what the rest is, to me, the rest is this. It is a place where God's plan for my life and God's power in my life are joined with my faith to produce a lifestyle of victory and fruitfulness. I'm going to say that again. Some of you who love to get everything down get nervous uh, when I think I'm going to move on. Let me just say it again. It's a place where, where God's plan, His plan, His, His, His statements for my life, okay, that's on the outside through His Word, and His power in my life through His Spirit are joined to my faith to produce a lifestyle of victory and fruitfulness. That's the rest. It's the kingdom of God. It's the abundant life. It's the Spirit-filled life. It's the abiding life. It's sanctification. It's all those things, but the rest is a place. It's a moment. It's an experience where God's plan and God's power come together in partnership with my faith and they produce a lifestyle of victory and fruitfulness. But now here's the scary part. We can miss that place. <laughs> we can miss it. That's the warning of this book. We can miss it where there's no profit. We can miss that place in our work. We can miss that place in our marriage. We can miss that place under the stress of temptation or during trials or in the use of our money or under pressure or amidst tragedy or in and among relationships. We can miss the rest. Oh, we can acknowledge God. And we can be acknowledged by God as His son or His daughter in Christ, in the church, among the people of God. We can be acknowledged in all those things. And yet at the same time, in all these things I've mentioned, whether it be, like I said, our marriage or relationships or temptations or whatever it might be, we can actually come to the place where God's plan and God's power are not joined with my faith and therefore it doesn't produce this life that God has offered us and will continue to offer us all throughout the rest of our life. We can miss that place of victory and fruitfulness. That's what the scary thought is. It's even more scary when it becomes reality though, doesn't it? So how do you keep from entering the rest? How, how, can, you, how can you assure yourself that you can get there well, if you'll remember back in chapter 3, it started this way. Look at verse 1. It says, Therefore, holy brethren, and really this verse sets in place, it's the cornerstone for chapters 3, 4, and 5. This one verse, chapter, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now I want you to notice two words there because they're key to these three chapters. The word apostle and the word high priest. Jesus the Apostle. What does that mean? Well, an apostle was a leader. If you think about the leaders of the church, you think of the twelve apostles. Jesus is called the Apostle. It speaks to Jesus' leadership. In fact, in chapter 3 and all the way through chapter 3, Jesus is compared next to Moses and is said to be a much greater leader than Moses ever thought to be, though the Jews would have thought that Moses was the greatest leader they ever had. But if you go through the four Gospels, you'll, you'll find, and anyone who's read even one Gospel will know for sure that if Jesus was anything, Jesus was a leader. A leader among men. Follow me. 
was what he said all throughout his ministry and his examples that he gave through his own life, his words, his wisdom, his teaching. He proclaimed to the world an entirely new lifestyle. And he led that lifestyle. Now, to a lesser extent, Moses proclaimed a new life too, although that new life was not so much as a spiritual kingdom as it was a physical place into the promised land. You see, leaders, good leaders of all kinds, leaders paint vision. Leaders break old paradigms and insert new paradigms, new ways of thinking. Leaders inspire hope. They raise standards. They challenge the status quo. Jesus being an apostle meant that Jesus was a leader. Unfortunately, there's always a downside to leadership. And in thinking of Jesus just as a leader, there's a downside there for us as a believer. You see, if you've been around a leader, you've probably felt some of the darkness of the leadership side. Because leaders often have little patience for people who can't pick it up immediately. Uh, leaders have a way of, uh, of not being patient with, with details because they've got the big picture. They know where they're going. Uh, they often can lack sympathy for those who can't keep up or understand. They can be easily frustrated by someone who, who is weaker, who whines, uh, who's broken, who can't, seem to follow the directions, at least can't understand, or who, who, who seems to be not a risk taker because leaders can't tolerate non-risk takers. They often can, can seem to run over people. They, they can carry an attitude. If you're not careful, you may assume this of them, although I don't think this is true in every case, but they, they can make you feel with their power either get with it or get out. That's, that's how leaders make some people feel. And I say this because if you're not careful, and if you haven't been careful as we've gone through chapters 3 and 4, you can get that feeling about Jesus as a leader. You can see Him as an apostle, just like Moses. And God here God has given leaders to His people, Jesus and Moses. But Israel couldn't keep up. They were too slow. They couldn't figure it out. They couldn't get the big picture. They were mired in the details. And so, pow! God just get, blows up. He curses them. And He says, you spineless wimps, you're not going to enter my rest. I'm done with you. I'm a big picture man. Now, I say that in exaggeration only to help maybe some of you who have been through these last few chapters and you're struggling. And we're painting this big example of following, getting in the rest, believing God, stretching yourself out, and you're saying, I'm too weak. I can't believe that. This sin's too big. And so you see Jesus as a leader only, with His standard too high. And you're so messed up and so mired in the details and so sinful that it's easy to start thinking by the time you get to the end of chapter 4 that He's already sworn you off too. God's given up on me. I can't cut it. I can't measure up. The issues are too strong. I'm constantly in the ditch. So why try? If you feel like that, I've got good news for you today. That's what this chapter 5 is all about. See, a leader can make you feel that way, and if all Jesus is is a leader in your theology, then we need to expand it a bit. And to do that, let's go back to chapter 3 again. Notice it says that Jesus 
is to be considered as a leader, an apostle. But then it says, and, and it's this and that's key to chapter 5. It says, and a high priest. We're going to explore the priesthood of Jesus Christ today. See, God knows a good leader is not enough to get you in His rest. Did you know that? He's already figured that out. We need more than a peerless general who's on a white steed, who's at some distance from the troops saying, follow me. Now, that's inspiring. But we also need to get to the rest in the midst of a war, some friend who's walking along carrying a musket and a pack and worn out boots with us who will offer that shoulder when we just don't think we can go on, who will bind up our wounds, who will offer us some of His rations so that we can make it to the rest. That's what the high priesthood of Jesus is all about. This assistance as well as leadership. Yes, Jesus is a leader and apostle, but He's also a priest. He's a high priest. Yes, He's on the steed saying, follow me. But you know something? He's also alongside saying, let me help you. It is tough. Sin is big. Bigger than you. But I can help you get there. Having this perspective is what I think makes this very difficult chapter, chapter 5, come alive. So let's read the first four verses there. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. For a high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided since he himself is also beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sin. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, that is the honor of being a high priest, but he receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Now Aaron was the first high priest. You know, we don't talk a lot about the priesthood in Protestantism in this particular church, but the fact is one of the central tenets of both the Old and New Testament is that God has always appointed priests He always has, and He continues to, even in our day. If you go back to the early patriarchs, the family fathers, the heads of the family, served as the priest. Job was a priest. Abraham was a priest. Noah was a priest. When Israel became a nation, then God decided that He would select a certain family line to serve as the mediators between God and man, and He selected Aaron to begin that process. And so Aaron was the first of a long line of Levitical priests out of the tribe of Levi. And the system of of standing between God and man became very uh, sophisticated with the temple. And every year, uh, in particular, the high priest would enter in to the Holy of Holies and offer up the blood for the sins of the people so they could find out that it was okay to be imperfect. That they could go on another year with this great God leader that somehow He wasn't going to squash them. And so He would go in very tentatively in this Holy of Holies and place this blood, hoping that God would excuse them for another year. We call it the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, which we, by the way, just celebrated September the 18th of this year. That was the Day of Atonement for the nation of Israel. Problem is, is that there's no one offering sacrifices today. There's no blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But... In the new covenant, 
there is still the shedding of blood. It's been shed. It's Jesus Himself. And Jesus is this high priest that stands before God and man. Now if you'll notice in these first four verses, there's two duties of the priest that stand out. And I want to mention them to you just briefly. Look at, at first of all, in verse 1, it says that He offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. You see, one of the roles of a priest is that he was appointed, called by God, to keep the relationship between God and man open. And every one of us have had times where we have fallen in the ditch. And when we're in the ditch, you wonder, what is God thinking about me? He's on the other side, the high and holy lifted up God, and I'm in the ditch, and I've done it again, and I've messed up, and we're trying to figure our way back. And it's so helpful if you have someone who can come to us who's not in the ditch and say to us, you know, it's okay. He'll still accept you. Now the way of acceptance, of course, was through blood. And of course, that's why Jesus' blood is so important to us as Christians today. The priest was a way of helping man find his way back to God and being assured of that fact, even when his emotions would be telling him, God doesn't want me anymore. I, I don't deserve Him. Uh, there's no way He can accept somebody as worthless as me. But the priest was one who would help him find his way back through the blood. There was only one sin that the priest could not offer sacrifices for. It's one I'll only mention, but it's one that we'll deal with in two weeks when we go into chapter 6. And that was the sin of defiance premeditated sin. According to Numbers 15, when someone sinned like that, the priest was powerless. He couldn't offer a way back. He couldn't even offer the blood. The blood couldn't cover defiant sin. But for sins of weakness, for sins of ignorance, for sins of misguidedness, for sins where we're just struggling and we can't seem to get there and we take two steps forward and then one step back, for those sins, there was somebody who could help you find your way back to God. That was his first duty. Secondly, in verse 2, it says that he was also appointed to deal gently with the ignorant, the misguided, and the weak. Interesting word, that word, deal gently. It's a word that means to take the middle ground. It's a word that strikes a balance between irritation on the one hand for sin and anger, and on the other hand, apathy towards wrongdoing. In between apathy and wrath, is a middle ground. And that's the ground that the priest took in order to deal gently with those who were guilty of sin. The word means to deal with people with balance, to show compassion and firmness at the same time, to allow for failure and struggle, but without giving your approval. Now the reason I mention this is in this latter sense of dealing gently with people, each one of us are called to perform a priestly function with one another. For instance, in Galatians 6.1 it says, Brethren, if any of you is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore that person with a spirit of gentleness. Do you hear it? Same word. Spirit of gentleness. There have been times when when I've dealt with people for years in their struggle to make it to the place of rest. Not weeks, not months, years. Years they've wrestled with that. And from time to time they've come to me and in, in, in my own way, I guess I've played 
like you probably have played with somebody else, a priestly role. You know, they'd come in, they'd be beaten down, they'd be discouraged. Uh, they would feel that they've been defeated again by the same nemesis. And they'd want to talk about it. And they usually come in and they say, you know, I've done it again. Done it again. Can't seem to get a handle on this thing. You know, I've, I, I've gone out and impulsively put my family in financial jeopardy again. I told you I'd never do it again, but I've done it again. I said I'd never watch another pornographic movie, but I've done it again. I told you that I was going to treat my wife with honor, but I've blown up and, and, and I said things that I shouldn't have said, and it's just, it's just struck her to the soul, what I've said. I don't think she's going to recover. I've done it again. I've gone back to this habit again. And what they're waiting for is for you to play the priestly role. Not to approve of their sin. But certainly not to say, boy, that's right, you're finished. <laughs> you know, no. In, in situations when you see the struggling heart, you say to yourself, these people need to be bound up. They need to be, they are still struggling. That's the point. And so without condoning their sin, I say to them, you know, it's okay. It's okay. God sees your struggling heart. The fact is, He's pleased with your struggling heart. That you're still struggling. So keep seeking His rest. Don't stop. It's okay. And in saying that, what you do is you strike a middle ground. Never approving of the sin, but never banishing the sinner to eternal wilderness either. See the point? That's the role of a priest. Sacrifice and sympathy. That brings us in verse 5 to Jesus as the perfect high priest. It says, so also Christ did not glorify Himself so as to become a high priest. In other words, He didn't come wanting this high priestly ministry necessarily, but God gave it to Him. And He quotes two Old Testament Scriptures. He says, Thou art My Son, today I have begotten Thee. Just as He says also in another passage, Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This phrase in verse 5, Today I have begotten thee. Just so you'll know, that's not a phrase referring to Jesus' birth, His incarnation. According to Acts 13, 32-34, this quotation from Psalm 2 is in reference to Jesus' resurrection. That's when He was begotten to be a Son of God. At His resurrection. It was there after the divine Jesus had tasted this incredible life as a man and suffered under the sin of the world that he became qualified to be a true high priest who could stand between us and God and offer sacrifices and sympathy. Both. Offering to God His eternal blood, but offering to men and women His identification as one who can really understand. And it was because of His resurrection that according to verse 10 it says, that Jesus was then designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now I know some of you are saying, Mel who? <laughs> and, and we'll get to that when we get to chapter 7 because as you go on in the verse, it says, in verse 11 it says, concerning Melchizedek we have much to say but we can't get to that right now. So we'll wait till chapter 7. It's just that Melchizedek was an eternal priesthood. Not of Levi. Jesus was of the order of Melchizedek. An eternal priesthood. But I want to focus 
on verse 10 where it says he was designated by God. It's used, it's a word that's used of a government official who summons a citizen to assume an office. And here Jesus came, took the form of a man, went through life as a man in his humanity, wrapped in flesh, and then offered himself to God as a sacrifice for sin, but then was resurrected not only to give approval to what he did, but also to have someone who could do something that no one else in no time or space could ever do, and that is fully identify with your problems. Fully identify with your weakness. Fully identify with your dysfunction. And understand how it all is messed up and still have patience enough to go through a whole lifetime without giving up on you. That's what this verse is talking about. At the resurrection, as Christ ascended to His Father, God, the government official, so to speak, the high and holy leader, calls forth and summons His Son and asks Him to assume this high priestly role to stand forever between man and God. And Jesus said yes. So now Jesus sits on His throne next to His Father offering His blood for our failure in handling sin but also offering to us His sympathy as we struggle against sin. Now we see a struggle in His own life while He was on earth in verses 7-9. through It says, In the days of His flesh, He offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to the One who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His piety. Although He was a son, even though He was a son, He had to learn obedience. Don't go by that too quickly. He had to learn obedience, just like you, from the things which He suffered. And having been made perfect or complete, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. Now in summary, what those three verses basically say is Jesus knows how to completely identify with your struggles and mine. He's not the leader only who's sitting there saying, follow me, and if you can suck it up enough and crawl in the dust enough and stand up enough without falling, you might can get there. He's not just that, though we need an inspirational big picture leader. But Jesus knows where you are. And that's what's so good about this passage. You see, He was there crying at one time too. Crying wondering if He had the capacity in His flesh to do the will of God. He was there doing that, and it was tough on Him as He knelt in Gethsemane. Jesus was the one whose humanity had to learn obedience, as it says in verse 8, just like yours, when every cell in His body said, don't obey, break, flee. See, He's been there too. He knows how to identify. You know, one of the things I think is so great, and the baptisms only help in this regard, but you know, as you watch your kids grow up, one of the things that you kind of do from a distance, even though you're called to be the parent, which is leader, <laughs> but you also need to be someone who can identify. A parent who can't identify misses out on his child's development. But from time to time, you're going to see your children come in with issues they're struggling with, and it's going to bring back old memories. You know? And, and, and your heart's going to break because you know how it feels. When you have four kids and they're in all kinds of athletic events, there's 
there's bound to be disappointment. Like with mine, and, and from time to time, you know, they got all these hopes and dreams, and they come in and they didn't even get to play. And, and I remember when just hearing that, just this old wound of me in the seventh grade, looking forward to, to, to playing my first football game when I was so excited, and I, I practiced, and I worked, and all that, and we, we got in the team bus, and we had our uniforms, and then we drove over, you know, to play this uh, junior high, and we ran out on the field, and the coach came up and told me he wanted my helmet for somebody else. And, and I just remember the humiliation of standing there on the sidelines, you know, like this, with no helmet. <laughs> and everybody going in and out, and I, I remember one time the coach came up to me in the excitement of the moment. He said, Lewis, get in there. And he, he went, oh, you don't have a helmet, and pushed me back. <laughs> and I remember going home that night, and my mom was there, and I walked in, and she was wondering how it went, and I just burst into tears. You know, just crucified at the core. Because I didn't get to do anything. In fact, they laughed at me in that situation. I, was, I, I could just stand outside myself and look at this pitiful little kid, even as a seventh grader, and think, boy. Well, see, when somebody comes home and tells me they didn't get to play, see, I can identify. I've been there. Do you ever think of Jesus being just like that? Identifying at that kind of depth, knowing that kind of pain and that kind of experience, oftentimes we forget in that regard. And some of us even can callously say in our own sin when we're being pulled into it or we're being hurt by it or we think of all the people who contributed to our problem, we can say, you know, Jesus, you really don't understand. And then we can play our trump card. You know what our trump card is? You didn't have a sin nature. It's the easiest part of our depravity. It's what leads up to sin. And, it, and it's what occurs after sin. <laughs> That's the hard part. I want you to think about that. Not long ago when I was part of a common cause group on issues and action and we were dealing in the area of pornography, we watched a film it was really an interview between James Dobson and Ted Bundy, the serial killer. Some of you have seen that. An electrifying interview just six hours before he was executed. And I remember as I listened to that exchange, Bundy began to talk about how he fell into what he fell into. Though he grew up, according to him, in a Christian home and began to get in some magazines and, and then magazines led to certain movies and things like that. These detective magazines, he called them. They, they would be innocent by today's standards, but it was those things that inflamed his imagination and what he began to think over time finally spilled out in how he wanted to live. And he talked about the incredible seduction and pull and drivenness he would feel before murder. The whole time, if we're to take him at his word, that might be questionable, but, but the whole time he talked about how inside there was a part of Ted Bundy saying, I don't want to do this but the lust of blood would push and push and push till he would finally cave in. And then he would kill someone. And at the end of the killing, this is what he said. He said, for a moment I would stand there with blood on my hands and my lust would be satiated and I would feel at peace. I would feel relaxed. And suddenly I could feel like I could go back and act like a normal man. And he said, for months after that, I would act normal. 
And I would be loving to people. And I would want to help. The old Ted Bundy deep inside could get out for a while. But then would come the guilt as I began to review what I did. And then the shame. And right after the shame, the pull again. Now I say that because here's what I want you to know. He identified, as I listen to that, for me, at a much more graphic level, what I consider the three parts of sin. You might just jot them down. They're these. First, there's what I call the pull beforehand. Then there's the pleasure of a moment. And then there's the pain afterwards. The pull beforehand. The pleasure of a moment. And then the pain afterwards. Now, of those three, the only part Jesus can't identify with (laughs) is the middle part. That momentary sense of relief when you finally did what your heart struggled with not doing, but you went ahead and did it. And when you finally did it and, and in a sense gorged yourself on that particular act, suddenly it, wasn't an, it didn't have any impact on you. There was just a sense of pleasure and relief at the same time, and we've all experienced that, hadn't we? So for that brief moment, there's pleasure in sin for a season, the Scripture says. That little window is what Jesus Christ never experienced. But on the front end and on the back end, Jesus has gone way beyond what you have ever even imagined. The pull part. Jesus Christ has tasted temptation to the max. I want you to think of any sin that you've ever struggled with and feel the pull. And I want you to think you're in a race with Jesus Christ And here you are, and you're resisting, and you're struggling, and you're fighting, and you finally fall and give in. What I want you to know is after you've fallen, Jesus Christ still battled with that temptation at higher and higher levels of battle. But never once did He satisfy it with sin. He kept going on. He tested temptation to the max. Flawlessly, but he had he felt that struggle at at, at levels of, of experience that you and I probably will never taste. He's tasted it to the fullest. And then how about on the backside? The pain part. Jesus Christ was drenched in pain. He was drenched in agony. All sin, for all time, by all people, placed on him, and he had to suffer in that condition. Not because He sinned, but because He was made to be sin on our behalf, according to 2 Corinthians 5. So let us be careful when we look to our high priest that we not say to him, you know, you don't know how tough it is. You don't know how much pain there is when the truth is, you don't know. You don't know how tough it is. You didn't go the third and fourth mile. You didn't take on all that extra sin. See, you don't know. What you've got is a priest, a sympathizer, a friend who has a capacity to deal with any of your problems far beyond your capacity to even experience them. And there he is saying, I want to help. Boy, that is what is so exciting about the priest friend not just a leader, a friend next to us, understanding, empathizing, sympathizing, shouldering the pain 
from a life of experience. Which brings us to the application, which is actually at the end of chapter 4. It says in verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. You see that? Here are these Jewish Christians who are being pulled, persecuted, and tested by their culture to drop Jesus and go back to a human high priest. And he's saying, don't do that. He could never touch in your experience like Jesus Christ could. He can never empathize. He, he, there's not a sin that you've ever done that He hadn't tasted to the fullest. And He's still there patiently waiting on you to help, to pick you up, to give you the crutch, to get you into the place of promise. So hold fast to that confession. And then look at the invitation. It says in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find help or find grace to help in time of need. In Stephen Mosley's book, Glimpses of God, he writes these words, somewhat like a biography. He says, I blew it again. All those promises to the Lord just dissolved under pressure. No backbone. No guts. The other guys in our apartment were getting ready for work, but I needed a hole to crawl into. After they left, I started praying out my misery to God. I said I was very sorry. I asked for forgiveness. But every plea was something I had uttered countless times before. The same words. The same thoughts. Gosh, I felt like such a fake. Year after year, I came with the same worn out whining, the same monotonous litany of failure. God should have had enough by now. But you know, I did not find His back turned. He was not indifferent at all. Continuing in my hackneyed prayer, I soon felt some encouragement. Old promises came back to me dressed a bit differently. Suddenly I found a new foothold in some familiar verses. I felt the call of that perfect life again. My will picked itself up off the floor and stood at attention. I was warmed by hope. God had lifted me up. One more time. My friends, in Hebrews chapter 5, please let it balance with 3 and 4. Yes, we have a leader. But yes, we have a high priest. And the call of the high priest in Hebrews 4.16, if you'll notice it, is to draw near, not draw back. To draw near. And to draw near with what? What do you draw near with? This is the amazing thing as you enter the throne room of God. To draw near with your sin, boldly, with confidence, not fearing rejection. To walk in there with all this crud hanging off of you and to be confident in saying to God, I need help. I can't get unraveled with these things. I can't shake loose of these things. And to keep struggling knowing that God Himself will not cast you out, but He will cry for you. There will be a tear in His eye. 
even as he offers direction. We have a high priest who knows what that's like. That's the invitation here. And then look at the two things that are offered. You know, some of you might remember a few years ago in the NBA when the Houston Rockets acquired Ralph Sampson with Akeem Olajuwon. They called them the Twin Towers. Uh, Akeem is about seven feet tall, and uh, Ralph Sampson at the time was seven foot four. And uh, they were going to be unstoppable in the NBA. I couldn't help but think of these because when I looked at verse 16, I thought, you know, there are two Twin Towers here in verse 16. The first is mercy, and the other is grace. Do you see them? You can walk in there boldly. It doesn't matter how many times you've done it. As long as you're struggling, as long as you've not collapsed back into defiance and unbelief saying it's okay. When you do that, there is no sacrifice for sin. But when there's still struggle, you can walk in boldly time after time after time into the throne room expecting to receive the Twin Towers. Mercy. That's what we need in this day. Mercy. And then also, we might even find something special above that. And that's grace itself. The grace to be encouraged. The grace to be built up. The grace not to be condemned as a struggling heart. The God who forgives. The God who then softens. The God who then strengthens. The God who then encourages and loves. And we walk out a new person every time. Let us draw near to find rest. We need a leader. We do. But we also need a priest. And here's the good news. In Jesus Christ, we find both at the same time. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.